Good morning and welcome to another episode of Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite screen queens and literary kings of horror. I am your host, Nat, and this week we are diving into chapter 21 of Stephen King's Holly. Last week we watched our main character, our heroine Holly, uh, discover more clues, kind of process everything in her head, and she's now open to the idea of a serial nature of this crime. If you have not already, I highly recommend going back to the beginning and reading all the previous chapters with us. As a reminder, when you hear this sound, that means I have stopped reading from the text and am instead discussing thoughts, interpretation, things like that. When the sound replays, that means the mic is back to the author. Without further ado, let's begin chapter 21 of Holly. Chapter 21. February 15th, 2021 through March 27th, 2021. Part 1, page 203. Barbara and Olivia Kingsbury begin their meetings. There is always tea brought by Marie Ducamp, who seems to have an endless supply of white shirts and fawn-colored slacks. There are always cookies. Sometimes ginger snaps, sometimes shortbread fingers, sometimes chips ahoy, most commonly Oreos. Olivia Kingsbury is partial to Oreos. Every morning at nine, Marie appears in the doorway of the living room and tells them that it's time to stop. Barbara shoulders her backpack and heads for school. She can Zoom her classes from home, but has permission to use the library where there are fewer distractions. By mid-March, she is giving Olivia a kiss on the cheek before leaving. Barbara's parents know that she has a special project of some kind and assume it's at school. Jerome guesses it's somewhere else, but doesn't pry for details. Several times, Barbara comes close to telling them about her meetings with Olivia. What mostly holds her back is Jerome's special project, the book he's writing about their great-grandfather, a book that's going to be published. She doesn't want her big brother to think she's copying him or trying somehow to draft off his success. Also, it's poetry. That seems pretty frou-frou to Barbara compared to her brother's sturdy, well-researched history of black gangsters in Depression-era Chicago. Further, also, it's her own thing. Secret, like the diary she kept in her early teen years, read over when she was 17 as much of it as she could bear, at least, and then burned one day when everyone was gone. To each meeting, each seminar, she brings a new poem. Olivia insists on it. When Barbara says some of the new ones aren't good, aren't finished, the old poet waves her objections away, says it doesn't matter, says the important thing is to keep the channel open and the words flowing. If you don't, she says, your channel may silt up and then dry up. They read aloud, or rather Barbara does. Olivia picks the poems, but says she has to save what remains of her voice. They read Dickie, Rothke, Plath, Moore, Bishop, Carr, Elliot, even Ogden Nash. One day, she asks Barbara to read The Congo by Michelle Lindsay. Barbara does, and when she's finished, Olivia asks Barbara if she found the poem racist. Oh, sure, Barbara says and laughs. It's racist as hell. Fat black bucks in a wine barrel room? Are you kidding me? So you don't like it. No, I loved it, and peeled laughter again, partly in amazement. Why do you? The rhythm, it's like tromping feet. Boom lay, boom lay, boom lay, boom. It's like a song you can't get out of your head, a total earworm. Does poetry transcend race? Yes. Does it transcend racism? Barbara has to think. In this room of tea and cookies, she always has to think. But it excites her, almost exalts her. She never feels more alive than she does in the presence of this wrinkled old woman with the raging eyes. No. Ah. 
But if I could write a poem like this about Malik Dutton, I totally would. Only the boom lay boom would be a gunshot. He's the kid who, I know who he was, Olivia says and gestures to the television. Why don't you try doing that? Because I'm not ready, Barbara says. I was really intrigued by how Olivia worded this to Barbara. Obviously, no, we know that Barbara's family is African-American. If poetry can transcend race, why then can it not transcend racism? It really makes you think. If race is not at play, how can racism exist within the poetry realm? Uh, also, the stark contrast between Olivia and the Harrises. Not only is the tea not disgusting, but Olivia is encouraging, she encourages critical thinking, she gives constructive criticism, and doesn't force Barbara to do her poetry any type of way. Chapter 21, Part 2, page 205. Olivia reads Barbara's poems and has Marie make copies of every one, and when Barbara comes again, not every time, only sometimes, she will tell her to make a change or find another word. She always says the same two things, either you were not present when you wrote this, or you were the audience instead of the writer. Once she tells Barbara that she is only allowed to admire what she writes a single time during the act of composition. After that, Barbara, you must be ruthless. When they're not talking about poems and poets, Olivia encourages Barbara to talk about her life. Barbara tells her about growing up UMC. It's what her father calls the upper middle class and how she's sometimes embarrassed to be treated well and sometimes both ashamed and angry when people look right through her. She doesn't just assume it's the color of her skin. She knows it. Just as she knows that when she's in a shop, the people who work there are watching to see if she's going to steal something. She likes rap and hip hop, but the phrase my nigga makes her uncomfortable. She thinks she shouldn't feel that way. She even likes the YG joint, but she can't help it. She says those words should make whites uncomfortable, not her. Yet there it is. Tell them. Show it. I don't know how. Find a way. Find the images. No ideas but in things, but they must be the true things. When your eye and heart and mind are in harmony. Barbara Robinson is young, barely old enough to vote, but terrible things have happened to her. She went through a brief suicidal period. What happened with Chet Ondowski last Christmas in the elevator was even worse. It amputated her concept of reality. She would tell Olivia about these things, even though they are too fantastic to be believed. But each time she approaches the subject, almost throwing herself in front of an oncoming truck in Lowtown, for instance, the old poet raises a hand like a cop stopping traffic and shakes her head. She is allowed to talk about Holly, but when Barbara tries to tell about how Holly saved her from being blown up at a rock show in Mingo Auditorium, the hand goes up again. Stop. This is not psychiatry, Olivia says. It is not therapy. It is poetry, my dear. The talent was there before awful things happened to you. It came with the original equipment just as your brothers did. But talent is a dead engine. It runs on every unresolved experience, every unresolved trauma, if you like, in your life. Every conflict, every mystery, every deep part of your character you find not just unlikable, but loathsome. One hand goes up and makes a fist. Barbara can tell it hurts Olivia to do that, but she does it anyway, closing her fingers tight, nails digging into the thin skin of her palm. Keep it, she says. Keep it as long as you can. It's your treasure. You will use it up and then you will have to rely on the memory of the ecstasy you once felt. But while you have it, keep it. Use it. 
She doesn't say the new poems Barbara brings her are bad. Not them. Chapter 21, Part 3, Page 206. Mostly it's Barbara who talks, but on a few occasions Olivia changes it up and reminisces, with a mixture of amusement and sadness, about literary society in the 50s and 60s, which she called the Gone World. Poets she's met, poets she's known, poets she's loved, poets, and at least one Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, she's gone to bed with. She talks about the pain of losing her grandson and how that's one thing she cannot write about. It's like a stone in my throat, she says. She also talks about her long teaching career, most of it up the hill, meaning Bell College. One day in March, when Olivia is talking about Sharon Olds' six-week residency and how wonderful it was, Barbara asks about the poetry workshop. Didn't there used to be both fiction and poetry, like in Iowa? Exactly like Iowa, Olivia agrees. Her mouth tucks into the bed of wrinkles, as if she's tasted something disagreeable. Weren't there enough applicants to keep it going? There were plenty of applicants. Not as many for the fiction workshop, of course, and it always ran at a loss. But since the fiction workshop makes a profit, the two balanced out. The creases in her mouth deepened. It was Emily Harris who moved that it be shut down. She pointed out that if it was, we could afford not only to lure more high-profile fiction writers to come, but add considerably to the overall English department budget. There were protests, but Emily's point of view carried the day, although I believe she was emerita even then. That's a shame. At this point in the novel, I'm very frustrated with how often or how, I guess, consistent everybody is with using this emerita title for the Harrises. They are not honorable people. Titles are meaningless. It is. I argued that the prestige of the Bell Poetry Workshop made a difference, and Jorge, I liked that man, said it was part of our responsibility. We must carry the torch, he said. That made Emily smile. She has a special one for such occasions. It's small, no teeth showing, but in its way it's as sharp as a razor blade. She said, our responsibility is wider than a few would-be poets, dear Jorge. Not that he was her dear anything. She never liked him and imagined she was delighted when camped probably resented him even coming to that meeting. She pauses. I invited him, actually. So that was a new piece of information. Even though I've already read this book through, reading it, or rereading it rather, with you guys, she invited Jorge. And for me, that calls into a lot of question the philosophy of implication of guilt. If she had not invited him, would the Harrises have gone so far as to do what they did to him? I'm trying to avoid spoilers for any new followers. My gut reaction is obviously no, and I think that the novel supports it. Emily Harris had racial and lifestyle issues with Jorge and his choices, and she hated him regardless. Like I feel like she may have gone after him or volunteered him as a potential victim to her husband, regardless of the poetry workshop. Let me know if you agree. Long story short, though, I don't think Olivia Kingsbury signed Jorge Castro's death warrant by inviting him. Who was Jorge? Was he on the faculty? Jorge Castro was our fiction writer-in-residence in the 2010 to 2011 academic year, and part of 2012, until, as I say, he decamped. Did he write The Forgotten City? That's on our summer reading list. Not that Barbara plans to read it. She will be done with high school in June. Yes, it's a fine novel. 
All three of his novels are good, but that's probably the best. He was passionate about the virtues of poetry, but couldn't vote when the time for that came around. Not a faculty member, you see. What do you mean he decamped? That's a strange story, sad and more than a little mysterious. It's off the subject we are here to discuss. If Jorge ever wrote poetry, I never saw it. But I'll tell you if you want to hear it. Please. Marie comes in just then and tells Olivia and Barbara that it's time. The old poet raises her hand in that stop gesture. Five more minutes, please, she says, and tells Barbara the story of Jorge Castro's strange disappearance in October of 2012. Chapter 21, Part 4, Page 208. On the last Saturday of March, Barbara's phone rings while she's curled up in the living room reading The Forgotten City by Jorge Castro. It's Olivia Kingsbury. She says, I think I owe you an apology, Barbara. I may have made a bad mistake. You will decide. Can you come and see me? End of chapter 21. Not only did this chapter end on a wonderful cliffhanger, I cannot wait to see, I'm, I'm anxious to see what this supposed mess up is from Olivia Kingsbury. There is the slightest amount of suspicion, right? Because she knows the Harrises. She says she has a distrust for them, and I do believe her. However, is she in on it? Slash, is she protecting them? I don't think so, and I can't wait to find out. Also, little tidbit here, 2012 is when Jorge Castro first disappeared, so it has been almost 10 years to date at the time of this chapter. They've been doing this for a long time, and I think they're getting good at it. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, it's a pleasure to have you with me. I hope you come back next week. I think it's going to just get more exciting from here. If not, no worries. It's all a bunch of hocus pocus. Don't forget to like and subscribe.